Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this, and that is the weather. It is believed at least one tornado may have touched down in Atlanta earlier today. Dylan Lusk is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. We're getting reports, like I said, out of western Atlanta. We've been mostly getting a lot of reports of trees that were down in the area. It is, at least as of this you know, phone call, it is still pretty early. So we'll still be getting reports of the day of exactly what happened. Um, but we, we are pretty confident that there was a tornado that went through the western side of the metro this morning. And it looks like we may have had one more as well over in Douglas County. That was a week, one that spun up uh, around the center of the county, just west of the Chapel Hill area. Heavy storms hit much of West DeKalb, Fulton County, and northwest Georgia today, and much of the metro area remains under a tornado watch until 4 p.m. today. Heavy rains are expected to continue at least until Wednesday. Again, here's meteorologist Dylan Lusk with the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. Tuesday, once again, is looking stormy. We've got a chance of severe weather Tuesday afternoon into Tuesday evening as another storm system is going to move by the area. This one actually has a little bit better chances up towards northwest Georgia, but uh, we still have a risk out for the Atlanta metro area, and all hazards will be possible with that. So uh, we will have a tornado threat again tomorrow, as well as uh, chances for hail and damaging wind gusts up to 60 miles an hour. Officials say to keep an eye out for more possible severe weather and to have a plan in place to seek shelter in the event of a tornado watch or warning. WABE News will have more later today during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Burrs. In other news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp made the move to roll back more of the state's COVID-19 restrictions. The governor issued an executive order last Friday removing social distancing and mask requirements at restaurants, barbershops, movie theaters, and other indoor businesses. The order does include social distancing in many public spaces is now, quote, strongly encouraged, but it's not required. The new executive order remains in effect until May 30th. Now, this comes despite warning from some public health officials that it's too soon to roll back restrictions simply because not enough of the population is vaccinated. At this time, more than 6.2 million doses of vaccines have been given in Georgia. But the state ranks 44th in doses administered per capita among adults, according to the CDC. Meanwhile, the total number of cases confirmed since last year is 881,498. Of course, all our information comes from the Georgia Department of Health. And we should note this, Georgia also ranks among the 10 worst states per capita for newly reported deaths. The state's COVID hospitalization rates also rank near the bottom. This is Closer Look. I'm going to take you back a little bit because I know I wasn't born and I don't know if my other guests were, but I don't want to age them. On August 30th, 1967, the Senate confirmed the appointment of Thurgood Marshall. Now, Justice Marshall became the first black justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. And after Justice Marshall's retirement in 1991, then-President George Bush nominated Clarence Thomas, who would later be confirmed. And I also, we say, well, you know what? There's been a lot of progress, right, Rose? There's been some progress in terms of racial diversity as it relates to judges within the nation's judiciary landscape. But a new report from the Brennan Center reveals the racial makeup of the state Supreme Courts. They have a long way to go to achieve what might be considered adequate diversity. And this new report was an update from 2019. And then the key fact from that report, according to the Brennan Center, quote, 24 states currently have an all-white Supreme Court bench, including eight states in which people of color are at least a quarter of the state's general population. Fast forward to their latest report. Not much is better. But... 
What needs to happen? So joining me now to offer their insight, I have Tanya Washington-Hicks, professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law, and from Gideon's Promise, a nonprofit public defender organization, Jonathan Rapping, president and founder of Gideon's Promise, along with Ilham Askia, executive director of Gideon's Promise. Welcome to you all. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose, for having us here. Great, great to be here with y'all. So I hope I didn't age anyone by saying I think I don't know if any of y'all were you know born in in 1967. <laughs> I was a baby. He was a baby. <laughs> you know, but before we dig into the Brennan report, let's begin with the guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin in the murder of George Floyd. We've heard a lot of analysis, such as this was accountability, but far from justice. Uh, Professor Washington uh, Hicks, I'll begin with you. Your takeaway from not only just the verdict, but the everything leading up to it. So I do agree that it was an expression of accountability and not justice. I mean, we did convict one person, but we've yet to indict the system that continues to perpetuate outcomes that place um, black and brown and poor folks uh, in harm's way. But I think we need to be mindful that one of the reasons we got this kind of a verdict is because of the diversity of the decision makers. I mean, it was an extraordinarily diverse jury. Normally, you don't have that in um, prosecutions of police for uh, brutality against citizens. And so we need to be mindful that when you get a diverse jury or when you have a diverse bench, Mm -hmm. you're going to get better justice. Jonathan, your reflections on what Tanya, not only what Professor Washington Hicks had to say, but in general to the verdict from last week. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with everything Professor Washington said. And, I, you know, I think it's so interesting is, is when you look to the system to exact justice from the people the system uses to police and prosecute and punish It takes a situation like Derek Chauvin caught on videotape kneeling on George Floyd's neck for over nine minutes, followed by nearly a year of public outcry um, in order to actually get a verdict like we saw. And I think what it really shows is that um, we can't count on a system to get justice for people that we don't see as human beings. Uh, We need community. We need advocates. We need activists. We need public defenders reminding us every step of the way that every person, not just George Floyd, but every person subjected to police violence is a human being who's worthy of taking time to look at and and see um, that justice is, is, is deserving. All right, Ilhan, your viewpoints on all of that. And I just think to sum it all up is that we cannot be complacent. Although this was a small step, this was a small step and a very, very, we have a long way to go. It's a marathon and not a sprint. And so changing the culture of the criminal legal system is going to take time. It's going to take the community. It's going to take activists and advocates to really change things. So although this was a small victory, for people of color and economically disadvantaged communities, we cannot just be resolved that it is over. And so we must continue and continue to fight and make change and push for change. Ilhan, let me stay with you because now as we begin to talk about that report from the Brennan Center, which we'll begin with this, in 22 states, all of the state Supreme Court justices are white. And in 11 of those states, as they put it, people of color make up at least 20 percent of the population. I know you all had a chance to go through some of the report. Is this alarming? Is it even startling to you? Ilham, I'll start with you. I, I wasn't surprised. I, I wasn't surprised. I mean, we have had challenges on the bench with diversity for a very long time. And also not just racial diversity, but diversity in experience, right? Mm-hmm. Experiential diversity is important. When you look at the number of people in law school, people of color in law school, those diversity numbers are alarming, right? Then you move them into my area of public interest, they're alarming. So I wasn't surprised by it. Um, I think that I'm glad the Brennan Center put the report out because now we have more work to do in, in this effort. Jonathan, what about you? Your thoughts on overall on that report? Yeah, well, I completely agree with Ilham. I mean, we we work in the criminal legal space developing advocates, uh, you know, as referring to my earlier answer, to make sure 
that we see every person as a human being. And I think far too often we, we come across administrators, um, judges, prosecutors, but certainly judges who don't understand the people their decisions impact because they don't come from those communities or they haven't had experience where they've actually been able to see what, what those communities are exposed to in the criminal legal system. And I think when you have judges that don't understand the people um, they judge, it is very easy to reduce human beings to cases, to process people through the system. And so while I absolutely think we have to continue to build a movement of advocates to make sure every person is seen as a human being, having a diverse bench um, people who come from communities that are impacted and people who have spent time as professionals um, standing next to people who are advocate uh, who, who are impacted is is critical. I'm not surprised like Illy because I've been in that court system and I've seen the lack of diversity on the bench. Mm -hmm. Professor Washington, you and when we were talking about this segment, you told me that you you were fortunate enough to have a mentor who was a person of color, who was a black judge. How important was that for you? It was extraordinary. And you mentioned um, Thurgood Marshall. So the judge that I clerked for on the Maryland Supreme Court, he started out his legal career as a defendant trying to desegregate a lunch counter. And his lawyer was Thurgood Marshall. So here's a Baltimore born and bred black man who you know, goes on to Harvard, gets his degree and comes back and served on every bench in the Maryland Supreme, in the Maryland court system ultimately becomes chief justice replacing the prosecutor as chief justice. So, I mean, just his story and to have been able to work with him on these cases where he was writing all of these scathing indictments of the system was just extraordinary. So nobody can tell me that a dissenting voice does not have power. You don't need to be in the majority. He's writing for justice down the line. And his perspective on the bench, he was the only black justice that we had. Um, he was he was not afraid to share with his colleagues how he saw things so differently because his experiences were different and his perspectives were different. And so I just, you know, as a young black lawyer right out of law school, it was it was the best formative experience I possibly could have had. So, Professor Washington, let me stay with you, because when we read the statistic that people of color make up 40 percent of the U.S. population, but then also in 28 states where there are no black state Supreme Court justice, 40 have no Latino court just, uh, Supreme Court justice, 44 states have no Asian-American state Supreme Court justice, 47 states have no Native American state Supreme Court justice, including three states that have a high percentage of, of a Native American population. So, mm -hmm. Professor Washington, I'll stay, I'll, start, I'll stay with you. What does that say to you? Where is the problem? Through your so, lens, what's the problem? I would add to those statistics the rate of incarceration and arrests and prosecution, right? So then when you look at those numbers where we're overrepresented um, as people of color, um, and then you look at the, the dearth of Black judges and Black prosecutors, and other, you know, administrators of justice um, or legal administrators, um, it's, it's shocking. We can't call that a justice system. And I'm so glad to hear the, the co, um, my co-colleagues on the panel talk about this as a criminal legal system. It's not a justice system. The people who make it just are the people that Jonathan's talking about, who push for it against all odds, under-resourced, against all kinds of challenges to eke out something that we can call justice. But if, if the system just operates as it is, it is designed to grind people up and spit them out. I want to, I want to now turn to Ilham and Jonathan because with the work that you all are doing at Gideon's Problems, now here's another statistic from this report. 32% of state Supreme Court justices are former prosecutors, while 7% are former public defenders. Ilham. 
Yeah, so that, when you asked earlier, was I shocked by diversity? No, but was I shocked in diversity of former profession of the bench? Absolutely, 7% of public defenders, and as you know, we work with public defenders all across the country to transform the criminal legal system, to make it more just, fair, and tell the stories of the people our public defenders represent. But I think you asked about what what is the cause? Mm -hmm. We are not looking to the undergraduate institutions to find our diversity. We are not looking to where there are a lot of first generation students, right? They get pushed to go to just because like me, students like me, economically disadvantaged growing up, I need to go to law school, become a lawyer to make money. And I'm not saying discounting corporate lawyers, but there are not enough public interest lawyers in law school, but you can't wait till they get to law school. You've got to start in the undergraduate institutions and really looking at historically black colleges and universities and schools that have a high concentration of people of color to push them and urge them in that space. Then you'll start to see those numbers change. And also, if the decision makers are all coming from the same place, of course, you're going to see more prosecutors on the bench, right? Public defenders have often been ignored. I'm not surprised they are ignored when when you get seats on the bench. And so we really have to look and ask ourselves the question, you know, are we being fair? Are we being just? Do we have representation, not just racial and ethnic, experiential, uh, former jobs, economics, all of that needs to take into place. And do these people belong? Is a sense of belonging in the system? And that's what I think really we need to look at and stop looking at the symptoms and look at the root causes of why we see the numbers we see today. Well, Jonathan, there's another aspect here that I want to add on to what Ilhan was talking about, because the Brennan Center suggests that states, through their lens, reform how they choose their high court judges and adopt what they call a transparent, publicly accountable appointment process, and a lengthy lengthy single term. Now, in, in some states where obviously many are appointed by the governor, and often it's I think it's fair to say that given the political structure of that state, you may find an appointee that might lean more toward the political affiliation of said governor. Uh, is that a, Do you agree with the Brennan Center that maybe this process states should review how they choose their high court judges and maybe revamp that? Don't know if it'll happen, but that's what they say. Yeah, well, look, Rose, I, I, I think you're you're right that that any system appointments, elections um, can themselves reflect the biases of uh, of the system. Um you know, there was an interesting proposal in, in, in the Brennan report, actually, I think it was an earlier Brennan report that talked about public financing to uh, to match or triple or quadruple small donations to really amplify the political voice of small donors, because we're starting to see that wealthier, more powerful donors have a lot of influence in an election system. Um, and I think that system is in place in New York. That may be a way to give voice to grassroots donors who may not be able to donate hundreds of dollars, but maybe tens of dollars. But but absolutely, we need more transparency and we have to find a way to make sure that judges reflect the 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 will of everyday people, the people who are impacted by the system and whose loved ones are impacted by the system. Professor Washington Hicks, what do you think in terms of state Supreme Courts and how justices are appointed to the bench? I think a lot of people don't consider how important state Supreme Courts are. They set policy um, and they give direction to the lower courts. And so when they make a decision, it's not just a decision in one case, it's a decision that is going to have an impact all the way down. And so I think reforming the system so it's not appointments-based would really uh, ensure that we have more diversity on the bench. Um, Chief Justice Melton is about to step down, Mm -hmm. which will leave one justice of color on our Georgia Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, That's problematic for a whole lot of reasons. And I want to piggyback on something Ilham said about the recruitment and the pipeline. You don't have Black judges 
if you don't have black law graduates, you don't have black law graduates. If you don't have black students graduating from college, you don't have black students graduating from college if you don't have black students graduating from high school. And so our pipeline needs to start way early, junior high and high school, telling students we need we need to recruit. Right. We need to recruit in schools that have a critical mass of Latino, Asian, African-American and poor students. So they, they see this as possible and they see it as their responsibility to serve in these positions. And we should note that when uh, Chief Justice Melton does step down, that would leave Justice Carla Wong McMillan, who was appointed uh, last year by Governor Brian Kemp. As we wrap up and, and I'm going to ask this question and, and some will say maybe it's fair or not, but. Where do you see if the Brennan, that the Brennan Center does another report, say, uh, three years from now? Do you think we'll see these numbers improve? And, Jonathan, I'll start with you. Well, look, I think there's reason for optimism, but cautious optimism. I, I mean, look, I, I, the federal government, this administration has made a commitment to ensure that, that um, nominees for federal appointments are more diverse, not just race racial diversity or, or cultural diversity, but experiential diversity. And I really do think that the federal government in many ways models for the states. It is much easier for a state to resist claims that they don't have a diverse bench when our national government doesn't have a diverse bench. And so I'm optimistic that this administration will make good on its commitment to have a more diverse bench. And while certainly some states will will follow that lead more readily than others, um, I hope we start to see progress in the next few years. And I'm optimistic. Ilham, are you optimistic? I'm always optimistic, Rose, you know, because I'm on the ground every day. And so, you know, Gideon's Promise has been, you know, facing the diversity challenge in public defense for so long. And we've been very intentional on how we recruit, where we recruit, what uh, allies we need in the space to help us do that. So I think now that the lens is pointing, this center has this this Brennan Center report has come out. People are now being conscious because sometimes when you're doing your day to day, you just don't pay attention. Right. You become indifferent. You're just not conscious of it. Now that we know, you know, I've said this before on your show, you can't unknow. So now help us bring in people and bring in folks to come and help make change and really change this criminal legal system. So I'm hopeful. And Professor Tanya Washington-Hicks, you get the last word. Optimism in this area? I, I am hopeful, and I'm hopeful, unfortunately, because um, people are going to continue to have experiences that call them to this work. There are a lot of young people who saw what happened last summer, and we're getting uh, applications from people who are like, I want to go to law school. I want to I want to change society. So that's what makes me hopeful. I wish we could be inspired by something other than people suffering and dying. But apparently, you know, that's what moves the crowd. Tanya Washington Hicks, professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law and from Gideon's Promise, a nonprofit public defender organization. Jonathan Rapping, president and founder of Gideon's Promise, and Ilham Askia, executive director of Gideon's Promise. Thank you all for taking the time. Very important conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It's the first line in former President Barack Obama's task force on 21st century policing. And it says, quote, trust between law enforcement agencies and the people they protect and serve is essential in a democracy. 
close quote. Now, at the urging of then-President Obama, the task force came up with some recommendations in identifying what they call best practices and offering policing practices. Now, as to what worked and what didn't, well, that will always be debated. And recently, civil rights groups and social groups came together with the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives to talk about policing and, communi- and communities of colors and other issues. And like I said earlier, we know these conversations have happened before. We want to know what's different this time. Well, I'll ask my next guest. Linda Williams is a former deputy assistant director for the United States Secret Service, a professor at the, of practice at Middle Tennessee State University in the Department of Criminal Justice Administration. And she currently serves as the president of Noble, which is the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. She joins me now to talk more about what took place with the meeting and all this and a range of other topics. Linda Williams, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, good afternoon, Rose, and thank you for having me. Let's begin with, uh, before I'm going to play a cut from Vice President Kamala Harris, but before I get to that, I just want to get your thoughts when we talk about policing reform, because the Department of Justice seizes two different topics, police reform and policing reform. How do you see that? The difference? You know, we're at a very tumultuous time in our history of policing, if ever there's a time that we need to reimagine and reform policing, the time is now. Um, this is for everyone that are serious about talking about change, all the stakeholders, it's time to revisit police policies and procedures, um, even training, recruitment, and even supervision. So we have to change the way that we're doing policing to make it more com- community-oriented. So change the way we are doing policing. I want to play this clip of Vice President Kamala Harris speaking directly, speaking shortly, rather, after the Derek Chauvin verdict. Today, we feel a sigh of relief. Still, it cannot take away the pain. A measure of justice isn't the same as equal justice. This verdict brings us a step closer. And the fact is, we still have work to do. We still must reform the system. So the vice president says a measure of justice doesn't equal justice. Ms. Williams, your thoughts on what she had to say? And she's right. You know, for too long, we've been grieving too long. Too many lives have been lost. And there's no more time for delay. Um, let's, we have to first acknowledge what's going on in our society. And the underbelly of it is systemic racism, that there's a dual justice system in this country. And until we have those uncomfortable situ- uh, conversations and bring it to the forefront, she's exactly right. One check does not change. It's a good step in accountability, but we still got a whole lot of work to do. And before we get into that recent meeting that you were a part of, for our listeners who are not familiar with Noble, uh, can you briefly talk about the history and the mission of this organization? Since 1976, Noble was created. We serve as the conscience of law enforcement by being committed to justice by action. We're just as relevant today as we were 45 years ago. NOVA has over 3,800 law enforcement chief executive officers, minority black, uh, through every rank and file of our uh, law enforcement that's on the local, uh, state, and federal level. When you talk about being the conscious of law enforcement, I can hear listeners saying, well, what does that mean? It is that, that litmus test to call it out for what it is, to, you know, to applaud the good, but challenge that, that you know, the status quo. we got to realize and, and have that conversation that, you know, America and even policing was not created on a level playing field. Even just the history of policing mm-hmm. started with police patrols. And as we still fight to get those rights, those, that underbelly still exists. And so we call out those injustices and we realize that our unified voice is our collective and our strong voice. Who makes up this organization? When we say we hear law enforcement executives, but we're not just talking about those who may be you know, police officers or, or chief of police. Is this a collective of anyone who is involved in just the, the judicial system, the legal system, the police, anybody? So it started out as a police organization, over 3,800 members, like I stated, our chief executive officers throughout the United States. And it started out as a predominantly African-American uh, organization, but our membership uh, today 
uh, includes, you know, nationalities from all over. So we have uh, law enforcement practitioners. We have students. We have a uh, different levels of associate um, uh, support. And, of course, the most executive level are the uh, regular membership. And Ms. Williams, let me ask you this, because you were a deputy sheriff right here in Augusta, Georgia, uh, not far from Atlanta. And if you don't mind me asking, did you ever have a situation where you had to draw your weapon or you fired your weapon upon someone? So I did have to uh, draw my weapon, but now you're making me go back a lot, a lot, a lot of decades ago. But you know what? But I do remember when I graduated college and I had aspirations in going into law enforcement. Ideally, I wanted to be FBI, Mm -hmm. um, but the trajectory changed. But I had to get law enforcement experience. So when I graduated, I moved to Augusta, Georgia with my sister then. And so I was a deputy sheriff. So I was only there for two years. But what I do remember, Rose, in 1986, the Ku Klux Klan demonstrated and marched down the main streets in Augusta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Now, they couldn't conceal their face, but, you know, I'm a daughter of the South, you know, I'm native of Memphis, Tennessee, but I never would have thought as a young adult that I would be looking at that. And then we fast forward 40 years na- later, they might have changed their names, but it's the same ideology. Do you feel that the community... Did they have a trust in in folks? Did you feel like you had developed, even though it was two years, did you feel like you had developed trust from the community? And I do. You know, it was a different time. Um, You know, thank God for body cameras. Thank God for cell phone coverage. Because some some of these things have always, let's let's say these things have always existed. Mm -hmm. Of course, we were being, you know, put on front street in high definition now. So even then, when I came up long, long, long time ago in the 1980s, law enforcement was still considered a noble uh, profession. People respected, you know, law enforcement. Even if, you know, you didn't agree with the police, you Mm -hmm. were respected. Nowadays, all of that is being challenged because people do not respect what they don't trust and respect. You all, I imagine, was this part of the conversation you all just, you participated in? It was called Peace, Police Engagement and Community Education. What was at the core of this this conversation that you all came together with some civil rights organizations? I believe uh, civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump, I think he participated in the conversation, I'm not sure. But what what was at the core of this that you all talked about? Sure, I'm sorry. Noble partners with numerous organizations, like you said, whether it's nonprofit, civic, and all of that. So over three years ago, Noble uh, signed a partnership with Lynx Incorporated, uh, the Peace Initiative. It stands for Police Engagement. I'm sorry, yeah, Police Engagement and Community Education. And it's just that that uh, we go out into community, we have those real conversations, we call out the injustices, and of course through our collaborative networking, we address these. That was a dynamic, dynamic workshop, I mean, forum. Uh, not only was it Ben Crump, it was Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP, Chief Ramos uh, out of Atlanta, and, of course, Ben Crump. Uh, and, of course, the national, international president, Tim Jeffries, of the Lynx. But it was hosted by the Buckhead, Cascade City uh, chapter mm-hmm. of the Lynx. So this was a powerful thing. This is the first time under my my reign that we have had such a robust conversation. But it's the start of many continuing because now, you know, people want to hear and know what's going on. Don't hide the truth underneath the rug. Let's talk about it. And what can we do collectively? The links are a strong, respected organization in this country. Noble is respected in law enforcement and across the country. And so with these two powerful voices coming together, uh, through our networking, through all our membership, um, it's time for a change. And again, I said our unified voices are our strength. Well, how do you take your unified voices, you just said, as your strength? How do you take that and how do you make sure it turns into an actionable outcome? Because one will argue, you all, it's great to have you all, you know, you know leading the cry here, but it may come down to policy or legislation change or what have you. So how do you all measure then the effectiveness of this unified voice? Right. And with all of those unified voices, with those strategic places, and as you said, we strongly 
push and encourage Congress to pass the George Floyd and Policing Act. Uh, we have, you know, we have partnership uh, with Congress. We have with the White House, with DOJ. So not just talk, just put it into action and through our judicial system, make it accountable. You know, even as we testified before, my predecessor uh, testified before Congress, we have what we call the noble first four were tenants that were extracted from the George Floyd and Policing Act, where we pro- we prohibited chokeholds, where we uh, said that it's necessary that police officer render medical aid, uh, police officer intervene when inappropriate is no longer needed, and de-escalation training. So these are tangible things, and although they have not been put into law, a lot of our constituents, you know, over half of the major cities in the United States are led by law enforcement personnel that are noble members. And so these acts are being put into place, even though it has not been solidified by Congress as such. So we have, you know, those stakeholders that we partner with. You know, there's nobody that we don't sit at the table with, talk to us. And as we're invited to DOJ, as we are invited to the White House, this is our voice. And we put that behind that as they ask us to do things that it's a, uh, you know, it's a reciprocity to let's get this right. Last summer, what came out of that also, we heard about defunding the police. I know depending on whom you ask, it can be problematic. Some say this is a a step forward, but also in understanding what defunding the police looks like in terms of not giving any financial support to police departments because we know they need them. But it's about taking some of the money and putting it toward I guess what you could call uh, wraparound services or other services within or for the the deplete the police departments and the community. Do, what's your your viewpoint around that whole notion of defunding the police in terms of taking money to allocate it elsewhere? Thank you so much for that. You know, one of my signature agenda items was the reimagining law enforcement. I established a task force that produced a report, uh, and that report has you know even as we speak is you know on the president's desk is in DOJ. We're meeting with the attorney general right now. And so when we talk about defunding, if you ask my students, they say do away. But I think Professor Williams has taught them that we can't live in a lawless society. But if you talk to my me and my colleagues as an executive, we cannot, you know, we don't need to strip the police officers, the police departments of their resources. We need to realign those or even re- reappropriate additional funding with our social services as Law enforcement deal with a myriad of things, and there's an over-reliance on law enforcement. Let's partner with social services, with the mental health you know, uh, uh, departments. Let's talk about homelessness. Let's mm-hmm. talk about drugs together. And, you know, and let's have a mitigation team that when law enforcement goes out, that, you know, we automatically are making that contact with these people on calls to come in with us. We can't take law enforcement out because, unfortunately, a lot of incidents has some, you know, criminal or has some propensity of danger. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you cannot just take it out and give it to a system that is not built and fortified it. So it's a collective effort. And that's why Noble meets with all our stakeholders on every level. Let's get this right. Let's serve the community. Let's stop being this warrior and this occupying force that has come in and rule. And not, you know, instead of being the guardian, that law enforcement is respected in the community. We respect those people, and they respect us. And that's how we'll continue to grow under that arc of community policing. And finally, as we wrap up, i got about just 30 seconds here, but I want to get your thoughts on whether or not President Obama's, that task force on 21st century policing, is that still relevant? Can you use some of those provisions today? Absolutely, absolutely, and that's what we stand on. That's our cornerstone. Our members played into that. You know, the last administration set it down. They wouldn't have picked it up, swept it off, and put it in place because that is tangible and, and, and real, real sustainable change. All right, Linda Williams, former Deputy Assistant Director for the U.S. Secret Service, also Professor of practice at Middle State, Middle Tennessee State University in the Department of Criminal Justice Administration, but also the current president of Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Thank you so much for taking the time, Ms. Williams. I really appreciate it. Good information. We'll have you back on the program. And thank you for having me.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia-based shipping giant UPS is looking to the future with electric planes. And if you're saying, really, why? Well, that's what we said. So we're going to ask Bala Ganesh. He's the vice president of engineering at UPS. And Bala, welcome to the program. Great Great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get to talking about all of this, someone out there says electric planes, have they even been approved? What is the process for approval of electric planes? Can you take our listeners through that? Absolutely. Yes, the the aircraft as of now is going through the approval process. So there is a mandated process by the Federal Administration, Aviation Administration, FAA, uh, and the aircraft is right now going through flight testing through mm-hmm. that process. And when we talk about electric planes, because look, electric planes have been around for a while. Folks need to understand this. It's not like they're, all, they're, they're new. They've been around. But there is a a process. And also, I imagine that technology has greatly improved uh, since the electric planes came around in the 1970s. Yeah, so uh, this is, you know, you, you really have to think about completely reimagining what's possible mm-hmm. uh, for our customers and for UPS. So uh, these aircraft can fly directly to and from UPS facilities, uh, really change the way we move goods and speeding up our network. And when we think about electric planes, should we think about electric planes in the same way we think about uh, electric cars? You know, obviously no fuel at all. We're not talking about any type of hybrid hybrid right correct we're talking about solely electric powered on a battery correct that's correct yes it is uh, powered by a battery and the cool thing is that uh, the unique thing about this airplane is that it can take off and land vertically so it takes off and lands like a helicopter and then flies like an airplane so now you can imagine what you can do with that right so mm-hmm. you can land directly in a hospital you can uh, potentially land directly in a business to pick up and deliver things. You can land directly into our facilities without having to go to an airport. Now, when did UPS come to this decision that they even wanted to start thinking about using electric planes in the future? And we should let our listeners know it's not like it's going to start next week. <laughs> it's going to be a couple years. Uh, so when did UPS start thinking about, you know what, let's add uh, electric planes to our delivery model here? Well, I think the the important thing for your for your uh, your listeners to realize is that this is about practical innovation, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like we're going after, hey, let's go look for this tool and let's see where it fits. It's more like, where's our business going? Where are our customers going? And what are the needs? And how do we find the right technology to meet those needs? And um, when we looked at uh, serving these smaller communities, mm-hmm. uh, healthcare providers. Uh, and other companies that are uh, working out of small communities, we thought this would be a great fit to uh, to serve them better uh, over time. So this is not necessarily uh, geared toward you know me sending a package to my aunt in St. Louis. It's more of if you need to get deliveries to a small rural hospital in, in rural Georgia, in, in southwest Georgia, somewhere like that. Correct, yes. Yeah. So the, these aircraft are capable of carrying 1,500 pounds and potentially could become even more in the future. So imagine that today, uh, for example, uh, we may land at Hartsfield and mm-hmm. then a smaller airplane may carry something to Augusta mm-hmm. and then it gets into a truck and then it's driven to the medical college, there, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, now, tomorrow, you could have a flight that goes directly from a facility, um, let's say in the smart facility here in Atlanta, and then flies directly to the hospital and then is able to deliver a 1,400-pound cargo capacity, which could include life-saving drugs. It mm-hmm. could include uh, testing equipment or whatever the case may be, which is urgent for that community. So given, given what you just said, then let's talk about then what type of electric aircraft would be best to to do this operation. So you all have purchased or ordered, I believe, 10 electric aircrafts from, is it Beta Technologies? That is right, yes. A company called Beta Technologies, whom we've been working with for um, a couple of years or so, and they're based out of uh, Burlington, Vermont, and mm-hmm. the, that's a company we're going to be partnering with in this area. Well, as we, and I love that word beta because you have to do some testing. Have you all even started doing any of that? You have a smile on your face. 
<laughs> yeah, so we are, uh, as, as I mentioned, uh, the aircraft is undergoing flight testing right now uh, in the upstate New York, uh, Vermont area. But right now it's being tested by the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we are there all the time. In fact, I'm going to be, be there next week uh, to talk to them. And, uh, and we are participating in the design and in the testing. And then once it gets to a stage where we can um, get a certified aircraft to start uh, flying, then we will take it over uh, ourselves. Well, let's move from how this benefits, you know, obviously in terms of the work that you all are doing or being able to deliver shipments uh, into areas that might normally would take a longer time with going from a plane then to a truck. But there's an environmental aspect to this as well. But I, I was reading where some would say, look, the electric planes won't necessarily solve the CO2 problem. What's your response to that? Well, this is one piece of a larger strategy, mm -hmm. right? So it's not like there's one silver bullet for everything. So think of this as one piece of the puzzle, uh, but not it does two things. First of all, of course, as you mentioned, it, it reduces the emissions profile mm -hmm. or uh, the CO2 emissions. But more importantly, it also reduces the total miles a package has to travel, like I mentioned. So um, the way I look at it is the most environmentally friendly mile is the mile you just don't have to travel, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this is going to have a huge ripple effect in how this impacts our business and the community as a whole. If you had to tell our listeners about a timeline, obviously you, you, we are awaiting, you all are awaiting in terms of approval, but do you have a target date in sight? So, yes, uh, we absolutely have a target date in sight, which we are targeting. Somewhere in the 24, 2024 range is where we are shooting for. Of course, as, as you mentioned, uh, there's a lot of moving parts to this, but that's the timeline we're shooting for as of now. And what are terms about the, the pilots? And, and is, that, is there a separate training that is needed for to, to fly an electric plane as it would be for, our, as we say, the, the good old-fashioned, the good old way of, of, you know, flying a jet? Is there different training involved? No, it will follow a very similar pattern, right? So uh, as today, people go through the pilot training and then they get what's called a type certification or, you know, flying that particular type of aircraft. So it's nothing out of the ordinary uh, mm -hmm. as far as flying is concerned. And any other concerns that you all have that you're working through right now as relates to using these electric planes in the future? I think, you know, there's always the details. As an engineering company, we always have to work through all the details to bring it all together to make sure this happens every day, day in and day out. Um, because, as you, you know, we've got to be delivering those packages every day. So mm -hmm. the question is, how do you make it scalable? How do you make it uh, reliable? And how do you execute on this day in and day out? Let me ask you this. As it relates to technology and the future of, uh, we call you all, you know, shipping giants, delivery giants, such as UPS and your competitors, what else do you see on the horizon in terms of technology changing how you all do what you do? Yeah, so uh, we have this internal uh, word we use, um, and we call this building our smart logistics network. So uh, by that I mean, what are all these different pieces that we can put together to make sure we can move packages in the most efficient, effective manner mm -hmm. so that you uh, can receive your package at the right time at the right place? Not just your things you order uh, online, but also your uh, potentially in the future, this could be personalized medicine that is suited just for your DNA, right? So there's a variety of areas we're working on. So one area is we've, we've made a huge impact on is, of course, the vaccine supply chain uh, recently, mm -hmm. where um, not only have we put in a full cold chain, and uh, so when I say cold chain, uh, making sure that we can keep the, the, the medicines at the right temperature when it gets to, you, to the hospitals and to the other facilities, but also making sure that we have these a variety of sensors that monitor all the characteristics of the package so that medicine is kept at the right temperature all the way to uh, the time it's applied to mm -hmm. the patient. Um, in addition, uh, we've also done a lot of work with looking at how we can um, optimize our network. So um, there is things we've done uh, in how we route our packages. So for example, if you take a, a route of ours, a driver, let's say, uh, it appears to be a simple problem, but mm -hmm. a driver who makes, let's say, uh, 150 stops, out of which certain stops have to be delivered a certain time, um, 
if you just try to calculate the various combinations of permutations of that, how we can do this, mm-hmm. there will be trillions and trillions of combinations. And picking the most efficient way to run that route is one area we've paid a lot of attention and time to. And we have something, uh, uh, algorithm and a program called Orion that we uh, use that. So that's another example of the mile that you don't have to travel, right? Absolutely. So um, making it efficient so that the driver doesn't have to drive extra, making sure we don't add um, to uh, the inefficiency in the network. I actually have a question. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, please. No, finish. And the last one is, you know, when you think about a network, that's the final mile, but we also move it in trucks, right? You've Mm -hmm. seen our big uh, tractor trailers running around on the um, highway. That's another piece of optimization we do, which is how do you flow those trucks in the most efficient way from, let's say, California to uh, New York City, for example. Well, I have a listener that just sent me a question and wants to know how far can one of these electric planes travel on a full charged battery? Very good question. Yeah. So, um, as I said, battery technology is improving all the time. As of now, we're estimating um, about, uh, you know, about a 200, 250 mile range that we think we can uh, fly on this on a single charge. Mm-hmm. And it's about a one hour recharge time to get a charge back up again. So, so, but this is only going to improve over time. So I imagine you all for right now, when you start this, it will just be for domestic side delivery? We are starting with it, but definitely we are a global company. So we always look at everything uh, with a global perspective. Are you going to get in one and, and, and have you been in one already if you haven't? Uh, well, next week I plan to get in one. I've already flown the simulator, uh, but uh, yeah, but that's different plan. when you're on the ground and when you're in the air. <laughs> but uh, yes, I am looking forward to actually flying it. All right, we appreciate you taking the time. So, 2024, we might see some electric planes from UPS. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, yeah, especially <laughs> if you live in Augusta. All right. We appreciate that. And if folks, folks want to learn more about it, is there information on your our, our listeners are very intrigued because they're sending me emails. I want to learn more about this plane. I'm like, well, just go to UPS's website. But, but <laughs> Bala Ganesh is the vice president of engineering at UPS. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much. Rick. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. Make sure you stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.